so my mom and I were speaking about friendships and more specifically adult friendships and how as you grow up you you don't you don't have those wonderful in-depth childlike friendships any longer you don't have your friendships that you have when you're 16 or 17 they they seemingly go away and maybe that's highly highly dependent on people and your experience but my mom my mom came to me with this idea because she sees our generation as really lonely mm-hmm. and uh she she kind of swipes away at the the whole social media connectedness idea that so that social media is it's it's a farcical type of connection and instead she looks at she looks at how her generation when she was growing up you would you would get out you would get out of college or get out of high school and you'd marry around 24 maybe 28 and then you'd have kids at 30 33 and that would be that would be your those would be your friends or that would be your community mm-hmm. and then you you go to you go to work and you develop friendships there but they're not they're not those cohesive friendships that you're you're able to have like a, a you're able to form a nucleus around that they're like wow this is a stationary person in my life they're more of those transient friendships so for my my mom's generation um it was it was it was your your family that was really the main the mainstay and then through your family you met other families mm-hmm. and you kind of networked that way and yeah. you developed friendships that way with our generation we don't we don't get married until later on if if we even get married and so you don't have that you don't have that networking of families with families any longer mm. um neighbors we don't like pff, i don't know my neighbors yeah um and my work colleagues their work colleagues like they're they're transient people some a lot of the people at my work spend two years at one place and go to the next place yeah and so we are we're like we're like homeless citizens that don't have friendships hmm and that's what that's what that's what my mom and I are speaking about because I mentioned to her that when when I was what she watched me go through when I was young, where I was dating a whole many, many people, I was trying to find that friendship, that stationary, that stationary construction hmm. that w- you know we believe is out there. And uh, I thought I had that in Grant, but he's dead now. And I thought, and I, you know, I I thought that I could find that in in another person. And so just that was a that was a conversation that I don't think I have answers to or I I really have a cohesive point for saying it's more of a hmm I don't know what to do with that thought. I don't know what I I agree with what my mom said. Um but at the same time I I don't want that to necessarily be true because to have to have certainty in people to have that that form of certainty that my mom speaks about mm-hmm. with with some of her friends and how she met people through having a family, I think that I search for that, and I'm still searching for that certainty. 
I feel that very much with Ari. Um, I feel that with our with our Need for Nuance podcast and being able to game with you. And but at the same time, I also realize that I don't know where you're gonna go after mm-hmm. this. So that <laughs> just made my like stomach fall out. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's, I mean that's what Casey Casey's having to deal with that too because law school is coming up very quickly for him when he when he takes this final july lsat and not cancel his scores and so he has to start looking at he's thinking about tennessee and so moving there means an entirely new fresh start yeah there, there's not going to be he he it's going to be like he's living in an apartment by himself yeah except with another human being that he doesn't know mm-hmm. so it will be technically living by himself and that's that's i don't know that's really sad for me that's a sad realization or revelation about how we've how our, maybe, how we, our generation, yours and mine, structured this society, or how society has kind of fallen into this transient living style that we have. We're yeah. made up of renters. Yeah, I mean, I think that that opens up so many things that, I mean, I don't think it's just friendships and relationships. I think it's like this mm. transience and this kind of like nausea, this kind of nihilism that comes with it. There's like, like if if I know you speak of your coworkers as transient, it's like, how valuable is this relationship that I established with this person? If I can see that they're going to be gone, mm-hmm. be- like before that relationship will matter, if it matters at all. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this this week because I've been going through the swampy muck of misery, going through job listings now that I have my master's degree, trying yeah. to find some kind of job that looks like some semblance of fulfilling, but monetarily fulfilling, but you know, stable, full time, mm-hmm. all these sort of things. And um, nothing looks like the right job. And, you know, having been propelled with external direction this whole time, it's like, what is my identity if not this thing that I'm doing? It, that's what society is going to expect on the resume. I just think that this whole idea of transience in life, I'm, you've always spoken about uncertainty being kind of a fixture of the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think this is where we return to like Eastern thought where like everything is in flux. And I don't know if, if it's just my Western mode of conception being raised in this culture, you know, and also the time period shift between generations that your mom and yourself spoke about. Um, like we really are attached to things and I, I can speak back to my own friendships in my childhood, maybe two to four of them have stuck around and, um, and of the quality of those relationships, they have just continually dwindled and dwindled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like most of the people kind of like Casey have moved away. I mm-hmm. mean, my childhood best friend, uh, Forrest, we still talk, but we don't hang out very much. And when he does come back into Jacksonville, um, I see him maybe once or twice in the month or two that he's here before right. he goes back. It's not like we're sitting there like we used to be really every night trying to get to hang out with each mm-hmm. other. And um, I wonder why that is. And even my relationship with Casey, I wonder where things have started to dissipate and and kind of structure out because, you know, your and my friendship began Mm -hmm. through that one. You would think that that my and Casey's relationship would be more foundational. Mm -hmm. But now that that's going away, I don't think that that's eroded our relationship at all. So it's making me rethink. It's more of like a web of people rather than like a pyramid of people that you kind of build up your life from. Mm and I could keep going, but like transience has been kind of a, a fixture of my imagination over the last couple of weeks and forever really. But Yeah. 
my sister's dealing with that in New York again. She moved up moved up there four, five years ago. Uh, no, knew nobody, started her own life, has friends, but they're not... Like, she has acquaintances at most. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have anybody she can call and be like, hey, I'm really upset and want to talk to you about this. Yeah. She has people that like, oh, let's go get brunch. And that's a, that's a, to me, that's really lonely. I, I don't think, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to, I don't want to live alone. Um, I can't imagine what, I, I, well, I mean, I can imagine what it's like to be alone, but I've done it and I don't think I want to repeat that. Why? When I finished a book called How to Be Alone, it was written by somebody, somebody, I, I forget her name. Mm. You want me, I can look for her name. As usual, no, it's, that, that's uh, to be expected. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, it's How to Be Alone. It's by some lady who, uh, who helps out with um, School of Life. I forget her name. Okay. Anyways, so she moved to Scotland, divorced her husband, moved to Scotland, and cut her ties, cut, cut off speaking to people. And she now writes and lives in Scotland by herself. And she gives a lot of advice for how to be alone, how to do it. How did she, how did she handle herself when, when, you know, she lives in a town full of like 300 people who she barely ever sees. And I, a lot of, a lot of what she spoke about was trying to be a friend to yourself, fulfilling Mm -hmm. your own, fulfilling your own needs, talking to yourself, talking out loud, um, being honest with yourself about how your actions can fulfill your, your needs and wants. And that in you know in social interactions that it's not necessary. I, I mean, a lot of it was just like, okay, I don't, I, I don't agree with this. It, this kind of sounds like bullshit. <laughs> um, and the reason I bring that up is because when I was alone in the woods, that that was definitely that was definitely shown as one of my major fears. Of not, of not having someone to talk with, to discuss things with, to work through my thinking with and their thinking, mm-hmm. to not feel like my words are important. One of the one of the things that in that book, How to Be Alone, she discussed is you have to make your words important to yourself because your thoughts are sometimes. Can, they, they can sometimes be harmful to you. And so how can you make the words that you speak when you emote things, how can you make those words be very meaningful that they overtake your thinking so your thinking doesn't go off into irrational, irrational what-if-isms? Yeah. Um, but to do that, to do that by yourself... That seems that just that seems like a really sad way to approach thinking about your thinking about yourself and your emotions and thinking about what your words mean to you. Like that that all seems 
that all seems estranged because you can do that when you speak to another human about your emotions. When you're on, when you're honest with yourself while being, while being involved in a conversation with another human and sharing that honesty with them about, you know, these are my thoughts. This is how I feel. And then them saying, well, I don't think that's, I don't think that's helpful for you to feel like that. You should treat yourself nicer. I don't know. There's something, there's something, I don't know. I'm going to use the word magical. There's something magical about being able to speak with another human being about how you feel and what you're thinking because it's no longer just yours. Now you get to share it with another human. Yeah. And your thoughts become less powerful when you share them. Less powerful how? Less powerful in the sense that they can override your emotions or your rational thinking or mm -hmm. your reason your reasoning your helpful reasoning that helps support your that helps support a, a a positive good outlook on who you are as a person rather than doubting and significantly belittling yourself mm. i i can relate to that i i have this kind of it's it's a almost a technological social anxiety mm -hmm. where to the point of the conversation we had earlier, like someone will text me and then I'll say, I don't really have a moment right now, or I don't want to develop my thoughts and be vulnerable right now is probably mm -hmm. the underlying take. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I put it away and then that turns into a day or two or a week or never. And um, that's a really unhealthy response because I sit there circling in my head about, I need to get back to that. I need to get back to that. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, just this weekend, for instance, I was going to go to a concert that I was really excited about, and my friend had bought an extra ticket. Um, this was a sold-out show, and so the person that um, he had bought the ticket for was unable to go. I was able to fill that role, and I was like, awesome, this is going to work out perfectly. Well, I got violently ill that night, mm -hmm. and so after a couple of vomits, I totally lost my voice. Man. It was It was harsh. And um, Food poisoning? Like what? I don't know what the deal is, but it's been rough. Ebola? Probably. Zika. Okay. But, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> malaria. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Your, oh, uh, was great. It's just, uh. So, um, so I, I was sitting there and like, I got off work and I told him I was going to pick up food and come over and we were going to go. And I got off work and I just felt awful. And, um, I wanted to go home and lay in bed and just not do anything i definitely mm -hmm. did not want to be at a hardcore music concert with a bunch of sweaty no. people jumping around slinging beer everywhere like i just wanted to be in a quiet dark room with my kittens and that's it mm -hmm. and um so i did that but i was sitting there and i wrote two or three different versions of a text and i would delete the whole thing and rewrite it again because i wanted to convey i'm sincere this isn't me blowing you off something really happened and um and as i wrote it it just felt like bullshit mm -hmm. i don't know why it felt like bullshit it felt like an excuse and i'm like why does this feel so shameful to cancel on a friend like hmm. it's probably because i have done it with bad excuses before mm -hmm. the time that i have a good excuse i'm sitting there feeling the same thing because my brain has been trained to react in that way mm -hmm. and so i ended up calling him and i had lost my voice so it was a terrible terribly ineffective phone call but i realized that calling him would be way more immediately reassuring than mm -hmm. texting him something long thought out ambiguous um i'd rather just call him and be like hey you could probably tell I'm not feeling good. I hate to bail. I'm really sorry. And let's get together soon. That sort mm -hmm. of thing. 
And that was it. And it was a simple phone call and it dealt with it in 30 seconds. Whereas the last half hour I had been spiraling into these thoughts of like, oh, it's going to cause these negative effects and I'm going to look this way and he's going to feel that way. Mm-hmm. And so um, a resolution from that, like I every time I take that initiative to just pick up the phone, so to speak, um, I feel so much better on the other side of that. Yeah. And, um, and to your point about like self-talk and self-care and friendship and that sort of thing, I've... Um, this past week have due to the sickness, not been drinking really at all. Mm -hmm. And so I've been having these ridiculously vivid dreams Mm. and, and that sucks. I hate dreams. I hate (laughs) sleep, all of that. Uh And, um, it, when I, when I sleep most of the time, it feels like I'm just thinking all Mm. night long for hours. I I never feel like I slip into sleep. Mm -hmm. Obviously I must, but, um, Mm -hmm. that is horrible. So I've tried to figure out ways to get myself to sleep and stop thinking. So, um, I've tried to become my own coach at night. Mm-hmm. One of those practices, and here's where I'll, I'll turn it over back to you, is like the first question I ask myself when I lay down each night is, what was I resentful or bitter about or or angry about or upset about that I could learn from to not react that way next time? Mm-hmm. Because so much of what I think about at night usually comes from work or from pe- like mm. failed yeah. interactions with relationships and so forth. And so I've started beginning there with how can I turn that negative reaction that I had, um, in, like how can I interpret that differently and behave differently next time? So all of those things. Yeah. I've been, I, well, I can, I can agree with you about dreaming. I, I, the, of course, every human dreams, I'm just going to use a simple statement to say, I don't dream. I just, I don't, I don't have dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, everybody does, but you anyways, just don't remember them. I just don't, I, I have no recollection of having dreams. I remember, I remember having three dreams in my life. However, recently I've been having dreams that make me get up, sleep, become a som- somnambulist. Um, God, I love that word. Anyways, you should define that for anyone um, besides me. <laughs> I think I'm the only one. I, I, I sleepwalk. <laughs> Yeah. I become a sleepwalker. Well, that's what somnambulism means. Um, somnambulism. I, I, I talk in my sleep. I've felt pain. Like one of my legs was cut off and I felt my leg cut off mm-hmm. in the pain that happened with that. It wasn't really cut off. It was like my knee was given out and I had my bones were grinding against each other. But it, was, like there was, it wasn't actually happening, but in my dream it was. And I felt it all and I, it woke me up. Anyways... I've been having though I've ha- I've been having lucid dreams that have been extremely bothersome because I don't I'm not used to having that mm-hmm. which those things keep me from sleeping well and I don't know why I don't know why I'm having them either the leg one was terrible because I was in my bed s- sleeping as I do mm-hmm. and I like my feet to hang off the edge of the bed with a, with them uncovered it feels really good it's very comfortable because you know monsters don't exist <laughs> that's the title of the podcast and, <laughs> monsters and, don't and so in the middle in my dream I was having these horrible I was in my bed having horrible knee problems like walking around at work something happened at work to ruin my knee my knee was busted and it was hanging off it, my leg was hanging off the end of the bed. And so I tried bending it. I, I, I was awake at this point. I was sleep awake at this point. I was still in the dream, but acting out. And I tried bending and moving my leg up, but it just caused immeasurable pain that made me yell. 
but I didn't actually yell. Mm-hmm. But I yelled. Hmm. And so I just, I had to figure out a way to bring my leg up off the bed without moving my knee because otherwise I felt horrendous pain. So then I, I, I grabbed the sides of the bed and pulled almost like, like a, like a, like a struggling corpse pulled my way up to the top of the bed, pulling my, my leg off the edge of the bed and in, in onto the rest of the mattress. And then I stuffed a pillow underneath my knee and then I woke up. And I like move my knee a whole bunch. I'm like, there's no pain. What what was happening? Yeah. And that was just. What have your dreams been like? Well, the thing with dreams is very few of them stick mm. around for more than about 20 seconds after wakefulness. Yeah. I mean, you kind of like you wake up convinced that like you're just confused by like you were convinced of the reality of the dream mm-hmm. and then you realize it takes about two to five seconds to be like oh i'm in my room in my bed mm-hmm. at this time with these people or whatever um my dreams confuse a lot of places and people and like i'm sure that's true of everyone's dreams mm-hmm. but it, it just it always never fails to surprise me how much i buy into the narrative of my dreams yeah um whether it's a physical sensation like your leg being cut off or like an emotional thing um i mean i have a lot of just like people that i have maybe i don't know sandpapery relationships with mm-hmm. um that pop up here and there and i you know you can exercise all the freud and jung and all that stuff you want here yeah um but Usually I, I defer to Christopher Hitchens that dreams are like the most more boring thing you could ever talk about with anybody. Mm-hmm. Like why even bring it up? So Joe Rogan has probably the most popular podcast in oh, that the whole guy. world. Yeah, I know that guy. And he sat down with this sleep expert. Um, I forget his name, but his book is, I think, called Why We Sleep. I read that. You have? Yeah. And um, it, it was a, a brilliant book. It was one of the most mind-blowing two, three-hour conversations I've yeah. ever heard. And like I've thought about sleep. We've it's brought like up sleep on the podcast. Page book. Yeah. It's it's apparently dense. I want to buy it, but I just have so many other books that I need to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that he was talking about is the function of dreams and the function of encoding mm-hmm. um, of like skills and stuff. And he was talking about the measured distance between people who get like if you get six hours of sleep, that is a fundamentally different kind of sleep than if you get seven. Yeah. Which blew my mind because I'm mm-hmm. somewhere between six and eight usually. Yeah. But um, like he was also talking about like if you drink before you go to sleep, then all of these these benefits that you would get from sleep never get there. Mm-hmm. And um, if you keep forestalling that sleep, you'll start having that happen in wakefulness. Yeah. Which is why people who stay up late for three, four, five days in a row start to hallucinate and get paranoid and schizophrenic mm-hmm. and all these little symptoms. Um, but anyway, that podcast was just... That's made me hyper aware of like how I want to start ritualizing the way that I spend the last hour before bed because I hate having that feeling like you're lying there awake all night just thinking. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. And I've also always maintained that like dreams suck. I used to not dream like you. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost always that's the case. But when I do dream, it's I think a good dream is worse than a bad dream mm-hmm. um, because you wake up and you're like, you're like, yes, things are finally clicking, whatever that is, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I got the job I wanted or I got back together with this person or wh- whatever it is. There's like yeah. some fixture where you're bought in and your prefrontal cortex is just shut off. So you're like, you're like stoked. Yes. And, um, yeah. and then you wake up and you're just, oh, it's disappointing. There's nothing worse than waking up after you have like a really great dream. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not pro nightmare, but mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely anti good dream. Yeah. 
remember as a little kid, I would dream, I would be falling asleep and then I would dream. So I, w I was asked to do a task, but you know, as a little kid, you're really tired and you don't want to do it because sleep is way more important to you than doing a chore. Mm -hmm. And I would dream that I did the chore and I'd fall asleep <laughs> thinking I'd done the chore. And so I'd, you know, five minutes later, mom would wake me up. I'm like, but I did it. And sounds like a convenient excuse. Yeah. Well, mom, I dreamt that I did it. <laughs> Yeah, but I actually thought I did it. Mm -hmm. Anyways. I think one of the loops in my life is, this goes back to our very first bench conversation where I felt like, I phrased it at the time as though I didn't have convictions and things. I didn't know what to stand for. Mm -hmm. And now that I, I'm kind of like, I mentioned that I've been going through like building resumes and applying to jobs and looking through and that that's maybe the most soul deadening thing I've ever had to do. Um, it is it's redundant yeah. to complain about that it's not like it's also redundant to complain about the job market and the state mm -hmm. of it and like I knew that I've heard this my whole life mm -hmm. and um, I've especially heard it throughout my college years given my study like your degree like what are you going to do with it that's everyone's first question mm -hmm. and now that I'm looking to apply it I just feel like yeah I guess they were right and at the same time like I still like even though I've taken my ideological stand like I want to study this for its own sake. Mm -hmm. um, I'm at the point now where I, I need to suck it up, so to speak, and I need to figure out how to convince myself to like, like not think of whatever I choose as identity forming and permanent. Because right. that, that's the main directionless thing right now is that so much of this culture is wrapped up around what you do. That's Americans' mm -hmm. first question when they're getting to know each other. So what do you do? And as shallow as that question is, it's an important question. And I need to be able to, you know, be well off, so to speak. You know, we've spoken about how throughout my entire educational career, I, my identity has been student. Mm -hmm. I've always like had a job. I've never like been a horticulturalist. Or I've never, I've never been a tutor. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like those are just things that I do for money. Mm -hmm. And when you're not going to school, then that identity stripped apart from you. Mm -hmm. And so you're left with this. It's like, you know, ripping off a bandaid. Like there's skin underneath, but is it healed? Right, and um, so now that that, that Band-Aid's been ripped off, I'm kind of like, whatever I end up doing is going to be putting a new Band-Aid back on, like teacher or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it becomes, copy editor or legal assistant or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but feel where the rational part of me wants to say, that's silly. You're going to do this for one to five years. You're going to probably... Your identity is going to keep changing. You're going to get interested in something else. You're skilled enough to make that happen whenever you want to jump off to the next thing. Like that should be a reasonable way to just calm those future anxieties. But every other part of me emotionally, it just buys into the cultural narrative that what you do is you and that's your value, not just yeah. monetarily, but like socially. And like when you introduce yourself to people now, student is really respectable, but like maybe something else isn't. And mm -hmm. should I care about that there's just all these things like identity feels so like like a double helix just intertwined with work in the society and i i don't know if that's worth ripping apart or not or if it even can be done that's it's a really difficult it's a really difficult thing to deal with ari's dealing with that right now she works at cracker barrel mm-hmm and she, she, of course, doesn't want to be known as a server. But when somebody asks her, what do you do? And she says, I'm a server. 
it's embarrassing for her because there you're you're not you're not you're not saying to the other person I am currently working as a server. You're saying my identity and who I am in society is a server. Exactly. And you're not actually saying server. It's you're you're really saying my identity and who I am in society is low class. And like that's that's not that's not fun to be a part of that that social norm that we have. Well, that's part of the narrative of meritocracy too. If mm-hmm. you're at the bottom, you must deserve to be there. Right. And. That, that's something she's dealing with. Am I dealing with that? Um, as a as a young as a young kid, my mom my mom my mom would correct me from say I would say, "Mom, I'm gonna be I I like I'm a writer," and like you know, as a little kid, you're a writer. Mm-hmm. My mom would say, "That's really nice, but why don't you say that you that you write?" That you're not a writer, that you write. And so I wanted to know why she was saying that. She was like, well, because when you say that you're a writer, you've created a box. And when you put yourself in that box, it's really hard to get out of that box. Mm-hmm. And then you start assuming that the box is you. Mm-hmm. And then you then you think that because the box is you, these are your sides. Yeah. And so you can't move outside of those sides. So when you do, it's really unpleasant and scary. Mm-hmm. And then what if something doesn't fit in your box? Well, let's not use, let don't put that in your box. But the issue is that that thing might be better than what you have, what what your box is. Mm-hmm. So it, it traps you into thinking that your identity is what you are. So when you make when you make something, when you make when you take a when you take a verb and you noun it, that can be damaging. When you when you so write with versus writer, mm-hmm. that can be really damaging to somebody because you're you're really saying I have the identity of this thing. Mm-hmm. And so now when I, now when I do stuff or when I really enjoy doing something, I was like, yeah, I could probably do electrician's work mm-hmm. or yeah, I, I could do plumbing. I, I don't, I don't noun something. I'm more of, I, I create things into grunts. You can say like, I am capable of this task or this, yeah. this work or this profession. Yeah. Cause I, I build computers. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a hardware engineer. Yeah. If I want to do engineering work, I'll do engineering work. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's how I think of stuff. So I don't, I don't try to, I, I, I try hard. Well, I don't have to really any longer cause it's become a habit, but I try, I try to make sure that I keep nouns away from who I am as a person. That's been really hard for me. I used to be a lot more ego driven than I am now. And I say that with a bit of consternation, not mm-hmm. like self-righteousness. Like I'm pretty ashamed of the fact that I used to, um, especially when I was like playing music, mm-hmm. I was a musician. I was a guy in a band, you know, like there's mm-hmm. all, like I put myself in that box because that was a nice box to be in. You know, it's a lot easier to say I play music than, you know, like people are interested in that. Like that's a mm-hmm. good icebreaker for a lot of people and mm-hmm. so on. And so it just became comfortable as a way to advertise yourself rather than saying, well, I'm a pretty complicated person because I like doing this myriad group of things. Mm-hmm. Or like when someone asked you about your politics, it's so much easier to say, you know, I'm a liberal than to say, well, I'm kind of worried about the far left, but also I think mm-hmm. that the the far right is, you know, like if you start like wishy-washing with anything about your identity, then it's to most people not as interesting and not as clear of a way to communicate. You brought up something really interesting that popped in my head. That's go, go for it. That is... What what you're saying with the whole wishy washiness on identity that's that's something that confuses the hell out of me. 
Because when you look identity politics, we don't you want wishy-washiness there. You don't want to be grounded in one thing. Yeah. And yet when somebody asks you about your identity, you should be grounded. Mm-hmm. You should have defined you should have defined nouns, defined articles and and a defined box that you fit into. Yeah. Well, that the, ex- the expectation that leads to that is also part of the kind of neurotic part of me that that I still want to get out of, which mm-hmm. is you know, my whole life when adults so to speak adults have asked me when I've been growing up like um well what are you going to do like after high school like mm-hmm. you always have to have a plan and it like it yeah. the fact that that plan has changed 3 4 5 times maybe 6 times by now um makes me feel kind of dumb like in mm. the the fact that I've given someone 4 5 6 answers like you know sometimes people at work will get interested in me like when I'm helping them designing their yard or whatever I'm doing and they'll ask me just personal questions and I'll answer them. Um, about a year and a half ago, I had, I had been really interested in like, when I'm done with this master's, I'm going to flip over and study law. Like I thought that mm-hmm. that was going to be the next step. And um, now she knows me as this lawyer and I can't like walk that identity back because I've expressed an interest in something. She now sees lawyer. Yeah. And um, not only does it make me feel dumb, but like with people I deeply respect, like family members, um, you know, my grandparents, whenever we get together, that's one of the kind of conversations that comes up is, they want to be helpful and like, you know, really try and give me advice and like Mm -hmm. they want to ask probing questions so they can reflect both in terms of their own experience, but get me to open up and maybe learn something about what I'm thinking too. It's a nice conversation, but it also, it reveals this kind of like instability and instability can come off as like not being conscientious about this thing that should be responsible. Yeah. I, Sometimes I browse through Reddit. Uh, I browse through Reddit's uh, PC engineering and the engineering and the physics and the chemistry and all the science stuff and mathematics, all those subreddits. And I'm specifically looking for people who are talking about how they've learned to do the different plumbing stuff, electrical engineering, whatever. Mm -hmm. And... I, I consistent, consistently see that these people say, yeah, I love this, or they're really passionate about it. And, like, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm extremely interested in electrical, electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. Am I, like, I, I... I don't know if those people are saying... I don't know how, what they really mean when, they're, when they say, I'm really passionate about this, or I love that, or it's what I think... Do they really think about it 24-7? Like, is that what they do? Do they wake up and immediately do that thing? Do they, like, Casey wakes up and does the LSAT every single day. Mm-hmm. Does he love it? No, he absolutely fucking, ha- sorry. He absolutely hates it. Oh, right. I can do that in Need for No Answer Again. I love that he, you self-censor now. <laughs> he, he absolutely hates the LSAT. He doesn't want to do it. He has to force himself through it. He's not passionate about it anymore. So... What does passion look like? Like, pa- I, I am passionate about fixing my computer, but I only fix it every once in a while when it's broken. I, I'm passionate about doing a, electrical engineering, but I only work on it when I have a project or I need to fix something or mm. something needs to be changed. I'm not, I, I'm not seeking out just to do it because I need to do it, yeah. just for the sake of doing it. Mm-hmm. So does passion mean I need to do... like? I'm, I think you and I have spoken about this before that sometimes you just don't 
like sometimes I don't know what being passionate about something really looks like. I don't feel like it. I feel like it's talking about the idea of perfection. Like you, it's not attainable. Okay, now you've lost me with that last little fragment about yeah. perfection. I I thought that the passion would be kind of like a bubbling over exuberance of like energy for some task. Mm-hmm. I think when we started this podcast, I was just like going in circles with energy about ideas and books mm-hmm. to read and conversations to have and ways to push the podcast out in real life and online and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with the Ludo narrative whole experiment, like that just there's certain degrees of energy that I have for things and there's a peak threshold and then it, it curves off and there's also waves and troughs and all that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've ran into this with, um, I don't know why this comes up so much. Mm-hmm. I haven't done it in a while, but like with the online dating thing, I always struggled with putting myself into a box because how the hell do you introduce yourself to someone in 300 characters? Yeah. You have to pin yourself down to something that is unrepresentative. That's a caricature or like an avatar mm-hmm. of you. And it's a self-selected avatar. So it's something that's dubious and insincere Yeah. Um, because like I do a lot of things, but I take degrees of interest in those things at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like I wake up and every single day I'm ready to go to the gym. Like some days I hate going to the gym, but generally speaking, I think working out is a, a part of my identity. That's important. And that writ large, all the other things that I do, um, I, I, it's so silly now that we expand it to all of these verbs that I'm stressing out about work, but that's just the way it is mm-hmm. or career even worse. Yeah. I guess what I mean about the perfection thing is I, how do you be perfectly, how, how does one be perfectly passionate about something? Because when reality sets in that, that passion changes it. Like when you were talking about the podcast, you were really passionate about the podcast, but when, when the, when the actions of the podcast came about, the podcast changed, it Hmm. became something else. It, It adapted to fit what reality was going to allow. Mm-hmm. And so that has to happen to people who are passionate about other things as well. Yeah. The re- reality is going to set in and change your passion to force you to do it in, in the order that reality begets. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I really mean. Yeah. I think I worry personally about like if all I am is these things that I've chosen for myself, Mm -hmm. then when I run out of degrees of interest, then I'm going to kind of be at a dead end and have days where I just am depressed and lethargic where I just I'm not interested in doing any of the things that I then feel guilty about Mm -hmm. not wanting to do. You know, I should want to do these things. Um, I've always been the kind of person who needs a little bit of external kind of, okay, you have to go do this. You have to show up at work. Mm-hmm. You have to show up for class, you, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, if it doesn't feel like an obligation, then it's so easy for me to rationalize my way out of it and get into those weird ruts. And, um, that's not helpful. Mm. No, I, I, my worries come from what if I don't have the skill set to do that? What if, what if like, for example, let's say I write programs I write a program and the program doesn't work and I rewrite it and fix the bugs and do it, run, run it again and it doesn't work. I don't know if it's that I'm just doing it wrong and I just need to do it a different way or if I'm actually bumping up against my limits in what I can do 
and the program is showing me that hmm. because it's not running. And, and, I, and I'm not able to see that my skills aren't up to par to do that thing. And I'm not also skilled enough to see that I've reached the end of my abilities. That's where that's those are like that's like that gets to the point that it's so uncertain because one it's 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 an absolute irrational worry because there's no way to prove that like there's not I can't look at you and say hey am I not skilled enough to do this you you'd have no clue even if you were the greatest program in the world you have no clue what's going on in my brain and you don't know how you don't know what I've learned there's no way you can I could look at another person an expert and say do I do I have enough faculty and skill set to do this thing? And so then this is the whole, I don't know why that happened. Oh, an alarm. Um, then this, this, for me, the only, the only pushback on that is, um, persistence. You just have to be persistent and keep trying and trying and trying again until you look like a dumb, a dumbass, and then you stop. Because once you look like a dumbass, you don't do it anymore. <laughs> I mean, that might be true of me, but I, I want to push back on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. I hope I, I definitely used to give up a lot quicker than I do now, but um, I don't know. I was going to go somewhere with that. That fucked with me. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is something. I'll just find a place to stitch this in. I read an interesting article this week. You know, let's say. Do you know who uh, Oliver Sacks was? Yeah, I know who Oliver okay. Sacks is. I was reading an article yeah. about um, the building blocks of personhood. Um, mm -hmm. He was talking about narrative as a pillar, pillar of identity, and I thought that it tied really well in with a lot of our normal conversations, but this one as well. Um, He's one of the clearest, cleanest writers I've ever read. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that th this is one of the first ones. Uh, this is not from Sacks, but this is in the article about Sacks. A person's identity is like a pattern drawn on a tightly stretched parchment. Touch just one part of it, just one allegiance, and the whole person will react. The whole drum will sound. And I was like, hmm, that feels, that feels close, but where are we going with that? Mm -hmm. What is that? Right off the top of your head, what do you think that means? So you touch one allegiance and the whole person will sound? Um I mean, I think one way that maybe to couch that with context is also like it could be positive or negative, like mm -hmm. touching a part of the person. Right. Well, you were talking about we, previous to this, we were talking about friendships and mm -hmm. loneliness in our generation. Mm -hmm. And you you mentioned the web of that friendships functions as webs rather than hierarchies or whatever. I forget R what you yeah, contrasted. That roughly with. speaking. So it functions like a web. And so. In academia, you use you use the use the uh, we use the nomenclature. This is a nebulous thought. There's lots of things going on, and that each each part touches each other, and it it forms this it forms this uh, this net that we that we're still trying to understand where it ends or where it begins, and blah blah, blah all that fun stuff that academia does. Hmm. So when we talk about this 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 web or nebula or net, if you touch one area of that thing, you are of, of, of that structure with a web, you touch one area, it moves the rest of the fibers in the web. Mm -hmm. Nothing, nothing remains unmoving. In the nebula, the same thing happens. You touch one thing, you're also touching everything else because in nebulae, everything is 
near or around each other. There's there's links between everything. Mm-hmm. And then the net is the same way as the as the web. So that's where my brain goes mm-hmm. is that of course because my me losing me losing my my cuppy that's a you might want to explain that that was not over the microphones <laughs> um cuppy is is i forget who gave it that name but anyways it's somebody gave my my big very large cup it holds half a gallon the name of cuppy it's an it's an open top cup that i got from the woods anyways they named it cuppy and so when I lost my when I lost my cuppy a few days ago, or just really misplaced, I've not lost it yet. Can't I can't be certain about that. Um, I, you know that that didn't that didn't just impact me now. That also impacted. Wow, that's a chunk of my life that's gone. Wow, that's a that's eight eight years of having that cup. That's all the conversations I've had about that cup mm-hmm. and how it start, it, how some people say, that's a huge cup. And suddenly I'm talking to them and I'm finding out about their life and they're finding out about my life. And that's all of, that's all of the little accoutrements that I've added to the cup, the, the little clasp that hooks on the back of my pants, the extra handle, the extra padded handle that I added over time. That takes out all of the actions that I've done with that cup. I mean, you lose one thing and you'd think, oh, I've lost my cup. Mm-hmm. Well, that sentence holds, it's a bucket filled with tons of stuff. Yeah. And so I think that's my reaction to the Oliver Sacks, or at least that, that article. Yeah. That there's, you don't, you don't just touch one part of a person. You, when you touch one part, you're touching the entirety of that person's experience. Yeah. Well, here's what Oliver Sacks actually writes, and I think that this actually illuminates that little anecdote about you losing your mug. Um, mm-hmm. he, he writes, We have each of us a life story, an inner narrative whose continuity, whose sense is our lives. It might be said that each of us constructs, or constructs and lives a narrative, and that narrative is us, our identities. If we wish to know about a man, we ask, what is his story, his real innermost story? For each of us is a biography, a story. Each of us is a singular narrative, which is constructed continually, unconsciously, by, through, and in us, through our perceptions, our feelings, our thoughts, our actions, and, not least, our discourse, our spoken narrations. Biologically, physiologically, we are not so different from each other. Historically, as narratives, we are, each of us, unique. To be ourselves, we must have ourselves, possess, if need be, repossess our life stories. We must recollect ourselves, recollect the inner drama, the narrative of ourselves. A man needs such a narrative, a continuous inner narrative, to maintain his identity, his self. So, mm-hmm. it's, it's, he kind of says it three times in a row, but um, I think that that, to possess one's identity is, is a way of kind of metaphorically speaking about that cup, that mug, mm-hmm. like to to physically hold part of your identity, all of those conversations, those eight years of time, mm-hmm. all of those little modifications you made. Um, and I mean, I think that that's, I don't know how foundational that is in your life mm-hmm. um, or how, how crucial of a thread that is in the spider web, to use that analogy. Um, but that's, that's part of what I've been dealing with, with this frustration of, of job searching and, mm-hmm. and kind of coming off the wave of education as well. Like two of my main threads have been disturbed at the same time 
Um, and yeah. Yeah. So you've reacted. The entirety of your being has reacted. Yeah, the drum has sounded. Yeah. Two things. One thing is completely unrelated to what we're talking about. The other thing is tangentially related. Uh, the tangentially related thing is the 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 whole the whole nervousness about having to find a job and that job becoming part of your identity. Mm-hmm. We I don't know when this started. This probably started a long time ago, but the 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 mentality that you're given a title at work so my title is this stupid pretentious sounding thing that doesn't actually represent what I'm doing mm-hmm. so I'm a um I'm a assistant assistant what is it called assistant storage manager that's not it I don't know basically assistant to the regional manager Dwight yeah Shrew. like like just just ridiculous it's it's a it's a pointless long title that try that makes my position sound really important mm-hmm. but that like that that entire thing is that's identity forming that's that's somebody that's somebody mm-hmm. trying to make me feel good about my job yep and it's a joke okay. so i like <laughs> they're trying they're trying to pull me into being more like it, it's like it's like the more the longer the name gets the more responsibilities they can pile on to you <laughs> without having to pay you extra. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. 